This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and as I record, it's 40 years to the day since Star Trek first made the transition to the cinema screen with the release of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, as some of you will know, uh, the release schedule for that particular film was somewhat rushed. Famously, the uh, reels of film were sent to the theatres with the film still drying uh, while they were in transit. So it was a film that was really rushed out in its initial release. And to mark the uh, anniversary of this kind of momentous moment in Star Trek history, I wanted to share with you a short recording that I made a few weeks ago when I and some friends uh, from the Destination Star Trek convention went together to see one of the series of anniversary screenings that they've been uh, around the country. We went to see this film on the big screen, uh, I think all of us for the first time uh, seeing it in the cinema, um, and, and for one of them actually the first time seeing this film all together. So I was joined by uh, some voices you may recognise from the uh, recent recording made at Destination Star Trek by Drew Barker, who's been on this podcast a couple of times, uh, by Dana Kazim and by Ben Keeling. And we were viewing the film at the Prince Charles Cinema in Leicester Square. Uh, so here's a little recording of our thoughts immediately after seeing it up on the big screen for the first time. So we are at the Prince Charles Cinema in London's uh, West End, uh, Leicester Square, in the centre of, of London. We've just been seeing the um, a, a very old print, I think an original print of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, and I'm kind of curious, I don't know about you guys, uh, for me personally, I've seen this film a few times over the years, but never on the big screen. I've always seen it. Last time I watched it, I was saying, sure, I, I, I watched it on my iPad. So this is a very different experience. But I'm kind of interested, first of all, what were your kind of first impressions tonight of of seeing it up there on the big screen uh yeah well it was great yeah i mean it's seeing it in the big screen it's just an epic film and i know it's called the uh, the motionless picture in a bit of a, a jokey way but even though it is slow it's it's just epic the the scenes and the visuals they're, they're really a great looking thing they're part of the film that just make it look really big even if it is done in a slow way the effects really stand up i think i mean even as much as this was an old print you could see a lot of scratching a lot of kind of damage to it uh the color was way off most of the time i think but the actual visual effects of the cloud uh came across really well i thought 
Yeah, definitely. I, I think they definitely look really good still. I mean, it, I think it takes a big page out of 2001 in a lot of it, which probably helped. But yeah, I totally agree. It just it looks really good and stands up to modern day sci-fi, I'd say. Um, I was quite impressed with the visuals. I mean, I've watched this movie about a few times as well. And it was all, you know, done should I say done right? Should I say done to the modern standards, I'd say, right? And um, I can feel like, I can tell that this, this movie's been tossed around a little bit with all the scratches, the different kind of colors that you've mentioned, and it makes me appreciate uh, cinema back in the day. I, I, I'm a new gen cinema fan, should I say. I, I'm so used to all these fancy things that Marvel throws out. This was just so interesting to see back in how other people used to see or how our parents used to see it, I suppose, which is really interesting, which also makes me feel like I need to focus a little bit more on the story. So that was something that I paid attention to rather than, oh, does this look good or that look good? Or can I hear this right? I thought, okay, so what's this, what are they really trying to say here? And it's kind of an interesting film because, I mean, as much as people criticize it for its pacing and so on, it is quite long, it is quite slow. There is a very interesting uh, kind of strange weird story there that's one of the things I sort of appreciated about it on this viewing I think was just how weird this film is and how kind of um, it does sort of draw you in if you give yourself up to it um, I'm curious Ben you'd actually never seen uh, the motion picture before so this was uh, your first experience altogether so I'm curious what did you make of it well, it was actually really interesting for me I felt like this I, bear in mind this is not just my first time seeing this film I'm, I'm very unfamiliar with the original series beyond the staples that we've all heard and, and the catchphrases you know damn it Jim and all of that but um, for me this really captured what I think Star Trek was originally all about uh, especially in the next generation and, and the original series which was about uh, discovering new life and, and exploring the unknown in particular which is I mean you've got those huge long beautiful shots of no one has any idea what uh, when you're, you're scrolling across the ship and going through those wonderful patterns uh, in the clouds uh, and it's all it's really it really allows the viewer to, to sort of go wow I have no idea what's out there and that I think is what the original I mean I've seen one episode and, and you get that impression that it's all about discovering and problem solving and, and trying to, to understand the world out there so I thought it was really exciting for me in the sense that it, it captivated what I think Star Trek is uh, at its core about. Uh, not that it necessarily is that anymore, but that's where it's come from. It, absolutely. I think it captures some of that weirdness of the original series. And in some ways, you could say from Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, that kind of era of Star Trek, it maybe all became a bit more... Um, not necessarily safe, not not necessarily predictable, but th there was a bit more of a kind of rational context for everything somehow. Whereas in the original series, you did have a bit more kind of wacky weirdness going on. And I guess this film absolutely sits on that sort of boundary very well. You know, it does have this big sort of strong, almost kind of metaphysical kind of spiritual uh, aspect to it, which I think, you know, I think works you know reasonably well as i say if you if you can kind of forgive it the, the pacing and so on there is there is always something to take out of it anyway i mean i think you're right uh drew absolutely they were going for a kind of 2001 vibe now that's a film that people find absolutely kind of transcendental one way or another but equally involves a lot of very weird imagery and a lot of kind of slightly mysterious uh unclear storytelling to some extent but you, you know, is that has that kind of feeling of a sort of an art film almost um, and I suppose, I don't know if this film is quite going that far, but I think of all the Star Trek films, it's the one that kind of goes the most in that direction insofar as you do feel you're sort of 
sitting there and witnessing something strange going on rather than like you were saying it's, it's very much not a kind of Marvel uh, entertainment like uh, or even like to be honest all the other most of the Star Trek films are kind of action adventure films this is a weird one there's not actually that much action uh, the human adventure as we understand is just begin- it's just beginning because maybe there wasn't you know <laughs> wasn't that much action adventure in the film anyway there was adventure of a kind of more metaphysical kind yeah, it's strange actually because I think it's uh, it's well known that this film was produced by Paramount in uh, in reaction to Star Wars coming out, and in some ways it's it's so different to Star Wars. You know, Star Wars is action adventure, and this is just like intelligent sci-fi. Really, I think it's it's at its core quite hard intelligent science fiction. I was just going to ask. So this came out in was it sixty nine? Seventy nine. Seventy nine. Oh, seventy nine. Yeah. So this. How long was this after the original series cancelled? Ten years. Ten years. Yeah. So I really thought that when there was that first uh, scene and you see um, you see the Enterprise in I want to say the dry dock dry up dock. in space yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, there's this beautiful ten minute totally unnecessary <laughs> but wonderful scene as you see them and in a wonderful moment because normally you get you know the enterprise in relation to planets and stars and there's no sense of scale but you get to see kirk and scotty next to it and you get to see how they compare to it and you get to see them with this creature that they love uh which i thought was really wonderful it was you get the impression that this is how every fan must have felt when they came back 10 years later to thank god my show that my cult show that died has been brought back from the dead it was really magical i thought i think that's a big part of it and also actually one thing watching on the big screen that i never really picked out uh before is that, that scene on the recreation deck where you've got all of those extras and all of those extras i think were fans uh of the show who had been kind of i don't know how they they organized that how they got those people in but but they were people who star trek meant a lot to and um a that must have just been an amazing experience for them to like see themselves on screen but also i just love the fact on the big screen you can actually sort of zero in on them you can see their faces there's one woman who is likely a native american woman has got some kind of feathers in her hair and, and stuff going on you know there's kind of they're kind of interesting characters there just in the background and i suppose the film originally was fulfilling this role of you know this is this show that's been cancelled that's gone away for a long time now it's back um star trek is back but yeah absolutely as you're saying the enterprise is back um and as much as that scene it does play a slightly ridiculous today i suppose we can't underestimate how meaningful that was to people back then who didn't have netflix with you you know the whole of the original series at their disposal they probably you know they were relying on reruns to even see it um and as much as some of the um visual side of it i mean the the kind of the effects of the cloud look amazing some of the kind of uh model effects i think you can see on this print anyway you can see the lines around them you know they don't quite seem to join up perfectly i mean i've almost i think only ever seen this film in the remastered version and i was a bit shocked seeing going back a bit like with the original series when you go back if you got used to watching the remastered ones then you go back and watch an old one you're like oh yeah that is what it used to look like you know when i was watching it after school (laughs) you know whatever um so, so i suppose there is that sort of sense of seeing it as it originally was and, that, and that, that's the benefit i guess of watching one of these 35 millimeter uh screenings like this is you do almost get transported back in time somehow no, absolutely i mean the one thing that i think was a little uh, special about this uh, movie compared to the other movies as well was um i thought this movie would do really well as just a two-part episode whereas i don't think that really applies to the other movies i think as you kind of kind of mentioned before they're more action driven i suppose where this has is genuinely a big quite adventure movie but i think one of the things that really i'd say 
I, I appreciate a little bit more, just going back to what you mentioned, is I finally get to appreciate what my parents saw in the cinemas, I suppose. But now I can understand when they go to a cinema, they go, oh, everything's so different. Why is it so colorful? Everything's so in my face. Precisely. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's an interesting point. And I suppose this film, in terms of the kind of color palette, I mean, admittedly, we were seeing it today with the colors somewhat distorted. I would say there were some very pink scenes. There were some very blue scenes. <laughs> but I mean, it was a lot of brown scenes. Yeah, but what, all I was going to say is actually the motion picture, that was a big decision that was taken then to really mute the, the colors of Star Trek. You, know, you don't have those kind of primary colors. You do have these kind of beige pajamas everywhere, um, which, you know, in, in, in some ways I think is is was potentially a misstep for Star Trek. It's something they never really, I don't think, have gone back to exactly. But it did give it a very um, different look, a different style. Um, the fact you can see the hairs on Captain Kirk's arms <laughs> kind yeah. of, you know, it brings different elements somehow, one way or another. It does, and as well, seeing it on the big screen as well, you appreciate they probably should have worn thicker underwear, some of the men. <laughs> I don't know what you were looking at, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it was there on the screen uh, in huge, you know, four foot wide uh, vision there. But also, uh, when Bones beams on and it's like the classic disco Bones, I mean, that, that is a, it's an excellent. It's a medallion. Yeah, yeah, the 70s. And I guess it's it's... The whole film's influenced by the 70s with that the brown beige. I mean, you're talking about when they was in the observation lounge as well. I'd never really noticed before, seeing it on the big screen, now you can see it in detail. A lot of it's carpeted, and, and the walls look carpeted. You know, it almost looks a little bit like Next Generation uh, when it first started and everything was like, all carpeted. It's, it's definitely that late 70s, early 80s kind of look coming onto the screen. Well, in a certain amount, of course, was carried forward for the next generation in terms of, you know, the relationship between Deckard and Ilea being transposed to Riker and Troy, for example. Um, and a lot of that obviously was a legacy of the fact that this film came out of a TV series that never happened, you know, this phase two series and the kind of repurposing of storylines and material from that. And even the guy who was supposed to be the, the Vulcan character who crops up as um, a human early on on that, on that space station, they sort of threw him a little part I guess as a kind of compensation for having missed out big time I sort of feel like he's the he's the kind of uh, real life Decker isn't he in a way you know the guy who's been passed over for this great job that he thought he'd won and yet um, you know here he is it's an interesting element of the film though I think as well how it casts Kirk because you know, there's that episode of the animated series with the Kirk as a jerk T-shirt. I feel like this in the films is is the beginning of Kirk as a jerk uh, being sort of part of his personality going forward somehow. Because you do see it. I mean, yes, I suppose as viewers we are relieved that it's Kirk in the captain's chair. But the film really goes out of its way to show him not necessarily being the right person for that job. Yeah. Um, I wonder if this is just kind of evolution of the character. So potentially they think that, right, let's go back to the original series. What was Kirk like? And what do we think he's going to be in, let's say, 10 years? Uh, interestingly enough, the music has just come on. Perfect. <laughs> so um, I wonder if this is just kind of their, the production's kind of interpretation of what they think future Kirk's going to be like. Still possessive about the Enterprise? Probably so. Yeah, absolutely. He's 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 never going to let go, as we as we see as a kind of theme uh, running <laughs> running throughout the movies. Well, 
I'm kind of interested as well. I mean, this was my first time seeing the motion picture on the big screen. Um, it takes me back as well to my first time seeing a Star Trek movie on the big screen, which, funnily enough, was literally just around the corner at the Empire Leicester Square. Um, and for me, that was Star Trek Generations. So I never saw any of the original series movies uh, on the big screen. It was when the next gen made that leap that I started going to the cinema. Um, I'm curious, what about you guys? What was your first sort of Star Trek experience in the cinema? Uh, well, I, I can actually remember going to see Rafa Khan. I would have been seven at the time, uh, possibly a little bit too young to watch the uh, watch it cinema. But I, I think it was actually near here as well. I, I very big memories of my dad won tickets to see it in the uh, up the West End, which was a big thing back then, uh, 1984, I think. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I remember seeing it, being very frightened by the bugs in the ears and. Uh, it's a good experience, though. But yeah, that, that's my earliest cinema experience with Star Trek. And had you been a fan of the original series? Uh, you know, had you been watching them in reruns? I mean, you were familiar with these characters, but in a smaller context, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm the classic. My dad was a massive Trekkie, so I, I you know, I, it's my bread and butter is Star Trek and Captain Kirk. So yeah, I, I've, it's in my blood, Star Trek, really, from my, my dad, really. So yeah, I, I, I've seen uh, pretty much every Star Trek film in the cinema and enjoyed them all. And, and what about you, Donna? Well, I started watching Star Trek when I was about 15, so that means all the original series and the next-gen movies have already gone in cinemas and out of cinemas. So the first Star Trek movie I've actually seen on big screen was one of the uh, the Kelvin timeline movies, right? Which is pretty exciting, because for me, I thought, you know, it was it was in the middle of Dubai, and I didn't know any other Trekkies in Dubai, and me and my parents got me into it. They thought, you like sci-fi? This is a good show. And uh, when I walked into the cinema, actually waiting for the movie to show up, or, sorry, the movie to start, one of the guys in the crowd yelled, Khan! on the top of his lungs, and I felt <laughs> great about that. So it was great, it was exciting. But I have to admit, watching the new movie was so different because I'd obviously finished the original series and then the, the next generation and watched those movies on my laptop at that point, and they've been remastered, and I thought they were pretty exciting, pretty uh, awesome. But then I went to see this one in cinema, and it was so different. Everything was blue, there was so much light coming out, but I was almost fascinated, I suppose. You see, I'm one of those guys, I don't know you, Drew, but might be too, who slightly struggles with the Kelvin uh, movies because all the stuff that your parents say about the Marvel movies, I have slightly the same reaction to them. And as much as there are elements in them that I enjoy, you know, and I do enjoy them, but for me, it, it, I suppose you could say there's a spectrum and maybe the motion picture is at one end, the Kelvin timeline movies are at the other. Uh, for me, like somewhere in the middle is the sort of sweet spot <laughs> for what I want from a Star Trek movie. But um, what about you, Ben? What, have you seen other Star Trek movies in the cinema before this one? Well, you know what? I, I did watch, uh, similarly, the, the other films were written way before my time, but the, uh, the Kelvin movies, I think... I, I must have been at university at the time and I had absolutely no money so no I didn't see those in the cinema so this actually this is my first uh, Star Trek experience oh, wow. in the cinema this wow. is I know you've taken my first time and honestly I mean I, it's sort of slightly biased because I have I've blasted through Deep Space Nine and Voyager now we're getting through uh, Enterprise and uh, watching a few bits and pieces here and there honestly I think this is a great start like I, I love that this is a big warm introductory hug for Star Trek. Uh, it just, it embraces uh, the nostalgia, it embraces the whole, uh, the motto of Star Trek, which is exploration and the unknown and and working together to communicate and, and overcome problems 
not necessarily with violence, although we all love a good action scene every now and then. Um, so I think it was great, yeah. I'm, I'm really happy to say that's a great starting point and hopefully everything else will be slightly better as well. But it, I think it was a really lovely intro for me. Well, I think if you love this one, then you're going to be really impressed by the next one, I have to say. You know. But look out for a screening because some of us... Uh, were you there when they screened that here no, uh, a year or two ago? Yeah, yeah. You, you might be able to find a screening of The Wrath of Khan and it's definitely that is worth seeing on the big screen again um, because, I mean, that is a really... A step up, I think most people yeah. would say, uh, and certainly in terms of pacing and kind of and and and, and that balance, I guess, between you see that that for me, that's that's what you really want from a Star Trek movie. Is that balance between sort of action, uh, adventure, character, drama? Do you know what I mean? All of the elements kind of in there, uh, with a bit more of a human touch maybe or as I suppose the motion picture has this slightly like you were saying it's a bit sort of hard sci-fi it's a little bit kind of um, it's not it's not exactly detached I mean there is you know you've got McCoy kind of grounding it quite a lot a lot of great one-liners that you know in the cinema were really getting the big yeah, laughs of the film yeah. um, but there is still that slight thing that there's, there's something slightly kind of um, intellectual or abstract about it on some level maybe um Rutha Khan very much sort of pushing in the opposite direction I'd say I mean what, what about you guys then who've seen uh at least all the Star Trek movies whether in the cinema or not I mean what do you think it is that really we look for because I guess when they were making this movie they weren't just trying to recreate the TV series I mean that would have been the easy thing to do would be to get the old uniforms back together uh, just kind of almost do a film and you do see that sometimes with TV shows when they go over to the movies that it's very much about capturing the aesthetic capturing the kind of dynamic everything about the original with this one there was a very much a conscious decision to sort of push it in a slightly different direction to kind of remould it reshape it but I'm curious when you go to the cinema for a Star Trek movie what is it that you're looking for that isn't what you got on the small screen um, well personally for me and I'm going to give you a specific example for this I really enjoyed the next generation and when I looked at the next generation movies the one thing I wanted is I wanted Captain Picard to show that much more emotion so I felt like first contact was that for me I wanted to see the human behind the captain I understand with Starfleet it's a strict code and you have to be at your best at all time and I feel like especially with Captain Picard has got his stuff all together quite well and for the first contact I felt like that really put it together quite well so I thoroughly enjoyed it and I I think that's what I kind of look for in the movies. Might be a little, you know, different different answer, I suppose, than what people would usually expect, but I want to see the human side of the Starfleet officers a little bit more because I think a movie is a good place to explore that. That's an interesting point. I mean, because I suppose there is that sense that with a movie, you can take the character on a bit more of a journey. I mean, I know there was a feeling with the next-gen writers when they were sort of going into doing the movies there, particularly with someone like um, Data, I think they sort of felt like they they could push him a bit further. They could do new things. They didn't have to put all the toys back in the box at the end of the film necessarily. And definitely, I think the original series really make the most of that because you do see, certainly with Kirk, um, you do see a progression of that character and you see him pushed into... I don't want to spoil the Wrath of Khan for you here, Ben, but, you know, pushed in directions that you maybe wouldn't expect that are not necessarily the safe, dramatic choices. Um, so I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it, that in a way that, that the films open up, particularly for the original series, where there was absolutely this episodic structure, uh, you, you know, continuity required that everything had to reset completely at the end of every episode. You do have this opportunity to tell this story moving through time and you know with characters aging and changing uh, to the extent that there is this sort of question in this film even 
are these characters the same people that we know and loved? Because, yeah, Kirk sort of seems like basically the same guy, but he's got a little bit of an edge to him that maybe we're not totally comfortable with. He is slightly screwing other people around. Do we entirely trust him? Uh, both McCoy and Spock come on board pretty hostile, frankly. And, and, and Kirk keeps saying, I need you, I need you, I need you. Uh, you, you know, he seems to be having this real crisis. He's like, I can command the Enterprise, but only with these two guys. <laughs> you know, um, McCoy is, is not... Uh, for it at all he's pretty pissed off to begin with Spock comes on board and there's that amazing scene where everyone's like sort of gushing over Spock and they're all saying oh, it's so great to see you Mr Spock you know how have you been tell us about your holiday you know and Spock is just like no not not interested <laughs> doesn't doesn't even raise one of his slanted eyebrows I thought I was amazed by that because I've because I have seen like an episode or two and he always seemed you know at least fairly benign uh, but he, he came on and he was actively I thought wow I want to give this guy a good punch like he's he's really miserable but then there was the moment after he he mind melded with with Vija uh, uh, not to spoil anything spoiler alert sorry okay this film's 40 years old I think we're allowed to spoil it by now <laughs> fair point um, yeah so he, he goes for the mind melt and then there's this sort of uncontrollable laughter as he's lying there in sick bay and you go oh okay that's weird but it's a step in the right direction that's almost we've got the old Spock back to some extent insofar as you know you're right I think you know with Spock yes there's this kind of cool aloofness but there is also a real sense of humour a real kind of charm and it's interesting even in that scene with Spock and McCoy you get that great sense where they're sort of trading barbs in a sense um but when uh, Spock says to McCoy, you know, whatever his lines about your predilection for irrelevancies, there's something quite cutting about it. And several people sort of almost gasped in the cinema. <laughs> I think at that line, they were like, wow, that's, you know, that was harsh. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, really. I mean, it, it's good because I don't think if they'd come back 10 years later uh, with exactly the same personalities and that, it would have been very good, really. And... Uh, I mean, obviously, Spock's gone away to Vulcan and he's tried to purge all of his emotions and that's where this is coming from. So it's good that they're carrying on the continuity of it all, really. So it's great. Absolutely. Well, um, any final thoughts before we go on the motion picture, on seeing it up on the big screen, on, you, you know, what that adds to your experience as a fan? Because we've got these films. We can go back to them, rewatch them whenever we want. As I say, they're all... I don't know if the films are on Netflix, but they're all, you know, you could, they're easily accessible from your, your, your tablet or your laptop or whatever. But it's quite rare, actually, I mean, to have a chance to see these movies in the cinema. And this is one of a series of special 40th anniversary screenings. We may be getting, I think, in a year or two's time, uh, the remastered version kind of upgraded and potentially re-released, which I think would be a real uh, improvement in many ways, because you would be able to watch it. Maybe it wouldn't feel quite so much like we're going back in time. At the same time, there wouldn't be those distractions of the kind of wondering, you know, is there a reason why this entire scene seems to be pink or... <laughs> you know, or, or this one seems to be blue. Um, so any any final thoughts or any kind of hopes for the future or expectations? Yeah, I mean, I, one thing that really surprised me in this, and I did actually, because I thought I might say this story, I tried to look up uh, what um, classification this is, and it, it was you that came up on the screen. And that really surprises me because this has got one of the most horrific scenes in all of film and that is the transporter malfunction thing yeah. i mean that absolutely terrified me as a child i i saw that very young and it's horrible isn't it it really is grotesque and quite often when you get these kind of social media things what scared you as a child the two of them come up it's either the the head in jaws at the hole of the boat 
or it's a transport scene. Yeah. What this film that that scene should not mean that this is a U, should it? This should be this should be a fifteen or more, really, shouldn't it? It, it? it is kind of horrific in a way. Um and I suppose the difference between that and maybe some of the kind of body horror stuff in the Wrath of Khan is that it is effectively takes place off screen you barely see it although actually i did notice again seeing it on the big screen you could see a little bit more of those figures kind of writhing in agony and so on and there's that great line uh, well what we got back didn't live long <laughs> you know, it's I, pretty I grim that, that person on the other end sounds so sarcastic <laughs> who is that that's terrible yeah someone didn't seem all that bothered but also kirk in that scene i think it's quite interesting i think kirk obviously is, is alarmed and sort of distressed but also seems pretty pissed off about it and he has that weird line to Rand he says you know don't don't blame yourself Rand it wasn't your fault A it wasn't because he took the controls <laughs> clearly if it's anyone's fault it's his but B he like he seems so unconvincing saying that you sort of feel sorry for her you know she's obviously really shocked by what's happened and he's made absolutely no effort to, to genuinely make her feel better <laughs> you know? To be honest, I was thinking about this right at the end where he goes, uh, right, uh, yeah. Starfleet, list uh, two two casualties. Yes. And he goes, no, no, wait, they're missing. Yeah. And I was like, what about the two people that got absolutely <laughs> mauled and mutilated? Down, like, yeah, there's there's like a stain on Starfleet's like <laughs> transporter pad back at base. Yeah. I was like, yeah, we'll just ignore them. They're fine. Yeah, it's, all, it's a happy ending. Yeah, yeah. I guess they figured they already knew about those two. That was like, maybe he was like, that. yeah, they're not my casualties. You know, that's on you. Uh, you know, you beamed them over here. They didn't make it. You beamed them back again. You know, that's that, that's not going on my... Because Kirk's got presumably quite a kind of long list of casualties attached to his name from his five-year mission and so on. He probably doesn't want to... In fact, maybe that's why he decided to list those two as missing. Because he's like, can I get away with it? You know, yeah, just, just about. Okay, that will, you know, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> That'll kind of make the statistics work slightly more in my favour uh, you know assuming that I'm hoping to get my second five year mission off the back of all this well it's kind of an interesting um, ending I suppose that that film has as well and this is the period weirdly if you do go and watch the Rotha Khan one of the things that's very confusing about the chronology is that the chronology in universe and the chronology in the real world are sort of out of sync so as I understand it and I've always been a bit unclear on this but there's there is intended to have been a second five year mission after this film and before the Rotha Khan right that we never see or really talk about um, so there is that sense at the end of this film that they're going off to a new start. And I suppose you've got Spock saying, I don't need to go back to Vulcan, I'm done. And presumably Bones, as grumpy as he seemed to be, is going <laughs> to tag along for the ride. And, and, and you know, and this is the crew now. Um, and we kind of have ended up pretty much back with the original crew, even though it seemed like we were getting all these new characters. They've all you know disappeared one way or another so we're kind of uh we have sort of finally got the toys back in the box but only almost in the last five minutes so i suppose there is that sort of sense that um you could say in the same way as next gen on the tv ended with this sense of actually we're off for the next adventure it's just you're not coming uh next time the film does sort of as much as it resets everything for a kind of cinematic storytelling it also kind of um doesn't really lead to any forward continuity in a sense because it does seem to end by saying okay everyone is back where you wanted them um and then the strange thing i suppose is that the original series films going forward don't pick up on that they do something very different again i don't want to spoil it for you <laughs> for you too much ben but you know they, they don't just continue with the adventures of the second five-year mission or of, of the enterprise kind of under kirk they kind of have to problematize everything and kind of throw everything up again and give us a lot more personal drama um and so on along the way 
Now, I think they kind of leave it potentially open-ended like that so they can discuss, oh, should we do the series again? Should we do another movie, right? So I feel like it's a little bit intentional. But um, I wonder if this is a good time to drop it in. I was actually reading about the origins of the Borg uh, during the week, and one of the theories was V'ger. So I'm wondering as well, like, is, is that potentially also left open-ended so that they can potentially explore it sometime in the future, such as the Picard series? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, there is there is a big gap, I'd say, before they actually start Wrath of Khan, and you're sat there going like, okay, so now there's more character evolution, but what exactly happened, I suppose, in the, in the middle? I'm not sure. Well, that would be a bold bit of continuity, I think, to bring back Vija uh, in the Picard series. That would, that would be truly, that would be interesting, um, and, and, you know, find out what happened there. Because there is a slight sense, I suppose, I mean, take it more seriously for a moment, that idea of saying we're going to list them as missing, not as as deceased in a sense is kind of a saying on some metaphysical level we don't really know whether they exist or not but it does almost sort of hint at that there could be a, a future story here do you know what i mean this whole situation seems to have gone away but they don't really know what they have witnessed um, and there is that kind of sense of you know well what's going to come next and the fact that the you know at the end of the film you get this title card the human adventure is just beginning is very much giving this sort of sense of this is the this is the this is the birth of something new. This is a kind of uh, a moment that future stories can kind of um, move forward from. Of course, albeit that when it came to it, they didn't really. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe if Gene Roddenberry had held the reins a bit more on the movies, that you know we would have seen more of that kind of continuity going forward. Whereas as it was, what we got was something quite different—a kind of another left turn into a slightly different direction. Well, um, before we go, uh, why don't you let our listeners know where they can track you down on social media if they want to, uh, if they want to argue the pros and cons of this film in particular, if they want to spoil the rest of the original series movies for Ben. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. That would be a Kirk is a jerk kind of thing to do. Um, true. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, T23TY, or uh, I'm always on the Babel conference. I feel I should ask you, and I don't know why I've never done this, but what does T232Y stand for? Because most people who are in Star Trek, they have some, like, like obviously, you know, 1701 something or whatever. What is this? What's the meaning behind this? Uh, well, that was the shortest name I could find that was available, and it's as fair <laughs> as that. Okay, I can't argue with that. Ben? Uh, I'm I'm on uh, social media, but I don't think you'll be able to find me. I think I'm, I'm, I'm privatised, much like... Uh, uh, much like the, the NHS. NHS. Oh yeah, well, I was so close to saying that. I thought, is that controversial? Uh, yeah, so I'm probably not findable. Okay, fair enough. Off the grid. No, that's just as well. So you won't have your your entertainment spoiled. Yeah, and you. Well, unfortunately, a little bit like Ben, I'm not on Twitter uh, because I don't know if I can say everything I want to say within the characters that they let me. To be fair, but I have learned that you can kind of continue. Anyways, um, you you'd be able to find me on Instagram, I suppose, and and, and Facebook. So just look up my name, and uh, yeah, we can talk Star Trek. Okay, cool. Well, thank you all for joining me. Uh, it's been fun seeing the motion picture on the big screen and fun having a chat about it afterwards. But talking about Star Trek the motion picture is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. I knew from the beginning it was going to be a very large and complicated undertaking. I was asked by the editor and the licensor to come up with a storyline 
for Picard that would deal with the fallout of what I unleashed in my novel Section 31 Control, in which Section 31's crimes, and in fact its very existence, are publicly exposed to the Federation at large as well as its interstellar neighbors. Earl Grey. Troy looks down at her empty stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do this part. I'm going to act it. Okay. Troy looks down at her empty stomach and frowns telepathically. <laughs> oh, I wish. Listeners, could. you couldn't see it, but I did that. <laughs> oh, okay. LaForge. <laughs> Computer, locate a big thing of chips. <laughs> to the journey! What about the basics, planet? That planet's not bad. There's a lot of wide open spaces. You just have to avoid going in the caves. Yeah. I mean, anthropologically speaking. No spelunking on that planet. You can spelunk on the <laughs> board, you, you, complex, but you can't spelunk on that planet. No. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. That he's... <laughs> he was taking he, the new body out for a ride? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> I mean, it was a great line. It just doesn't really fit what really happened like he wasn't out there dating other people you know like, well he was trying to figure out who this new Culber was you know no i know but it, I, it was I like funny it was lighthearted. It, it, right it just didn't it just doesn't fit what he actually did and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at MC and Tony at at AJBlackWriter. You're blended all right. <laughs>